Hello and welcome to What a Picture, a movie podcast where we go through the sight and sound greatest films of all time, critics poll week by week, and discuss what makes a great film great. I'm Brian. I'm weirded out. And I'm also Hannah. <laughs> weirded out Hannah. Weirded out Hannah. Yeah. I don't know. I was feeling very staccato. Ah, look at you. I feel like, yeah, we say we've now said the introduction uh, 49 times. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. We uh, we got to We got to mix it up. Keep you all on your toes, on your staccatoes, as it were. Yeah, exactly. I see what you did there. What Mm. movie are we talking about today? Oh, today we are talking about Cleo from five to seven. Yes. French uh, New Cleo, ah, uh, Cleo, ah, uh, what? Uh, I, I'm counting in Spanish and then also German. Uno, no, un, un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, set. Cleo, ah, uh, cinq, two, set. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I was like, cinco, wait, no. <laughs> Nuf, wait, no. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Leo from five to seven, a French film. Why we were trying to, why I was trying to speak in French. Anyway, let me get with the plot summary so I can stop cool. doing my terrible linguistic skills. So. Cleo, an emerging pop singer in 1960s Paris, is awaiting medical test results and become convinced becomes convinced that she will die after a tarot card reading. Cleo spends time with her maid, a lover, and some songwriters she's working with, but then becomes agitated that everyone is cuddling her, so she leaves out on her own. She meets a friend, Dorothy, and they go together to deliver a package to Dorothy's boyfriend, Raul, who is a projectionist. While they visit Raul, he shows them a silent film in which an older or in which a man sees a happier version of events after taking off his sunglasses. Next, Cleo meets a soldier named Antoine in the park, and she shares with him her fears about her illness. He comes with her to her doctor's appointment, but the doctor only briefly sees Cleo on his way out, telling her that her condition isn't serious, but that she will need radiation. Cleo tells Antoine that her fear is gone, and they are both happy to be together in the moment. All right. Brian, what'd you think about it? Well, I liked it a lot. Um, It was one of those movies that I needed to reflect on a bit. And like, I don't know, I feel like sometimes these movies click for me in the watching and some of them click for me in the research. This was more the latter. Um, And so, yeah, as I was researching thinking about themes digging into like the behind the scenes of this i feel like it it really clicked and i uh i liked it a lot there and we'll get into some of what i found there um but i found a lot to like in the like french new waviness of this movie but not in the like super experimental way like it's a little more reserved, a little more simple than like a Pierre Le Fou, certainly. But so it's like taking in some ways less risks, but the risks that it does take and the experimental stuff that it does do, 
I found like worked almost every time. Um, so I really liked some of those choices, especially in sort of the flourishes. I agree. I think that the things about it that were experimental or unique were still straightforward. So, mm-hmm. um, the you know the title of this movie, Cleo from five to seven, is basically from five p.m. to seven p.m. You're following this chick around, so it's almost real time, um, which is mm-hmm. fun. I mean, the movie's only an hour and a half, so it's not real real time. They must take out some of the mundane things that happen, yeah. but. I thought that was a really creative way of storytelling. Um, and some of the angles were very interesting. Um, some of the voiceover stuff. Yeah, there was a lot there that like were, like you said, Brian, there were flourishes, but they weren't so far out that you're like, what's happening? Like we've seen yeah, in yeah. Um, some of the other new wave films. So Definitely. yeah, I, I liked it too. I thought it was... Um, an interesting commentary on fear on anticipation on feeling like finding yourself becoming more and more powerless or the things Mm -hmm. about about you or about your situation that you find comfort in and you experience her in real time begin to unravel a little bit of what around her makes her feel safe and secure um and that's always fun to experience so yeah, I, I liked it too. I yeah. I didn't ruminate on it as much as you did because I don't write the outlines, and so yeah. I usually watch <laughs> it and don't think about it until we talk about it. So, um, well, I'm, you'll then, get the chance now in the next hour to do that. So that's yeah. honestly what happens every time we totally. go into a podcast recording. I'm like, I don't have much to say, and then I do eighty percent of the talking. So totally, or I'll find yep. something to say. Yeah. So the um real-time nature of it i thought was really interesting as a psychological portrait into someone who's going through something and i was trying to think through other movies that do the real-time thing so of course you've got like the oneers like 1917 or gravity or those sorts of things that you know those take place in real time because it's meant to be like one unbroken shot and those and there are other action movies like speed came to mind that do the ooh, ooh. Go i got one yeah 24 the 24 TV show. yeah i mean it's it's doing that exact thing of like it's doing it in real time in a like very actiony aggressively paced way um and then of course you've got lots of movies that are like almost in real time like takes place in one day takes place one crazy night movies that sort of thing um that are bottle episodes of any sitcom think friends the community one that even calls out that's a bottle episode yeah for sure Yeah, so you get a lot of that, but it's usually to uh, heighten the action almost, or you also have ones that are more reconstructions, like uh, I thought of 12 Angry Men and Reservoir Dogs, where it's taking place in real time, but a lot of it is dialogue about something that's happened before or reconstructing some sort of event. And so 
that's not exactly what this is doing. The closest analog to this that I thought of was Dog Day Afternoon, which is the Al Pacino movie we watched a little while ago where he like holds up a uh, a bank. Um, and it takes place in real time and you're digging into his psyche a little bit more. There's more action in that one than this. And I think I preferred this one. But just really interesting to use that not in a like fast paced sort of way, but as a way to like ruminate on someone's psychological state of mind. Well, yeah, because, I, you know, a lot of the movie was her walking through the streets of Paris and kind of mm-hmm. her moving around the cafes and walking down the sidewalks and going in the hat shop like there was a lot of quiet, mundane behavior that she did. But you still got to kind of sit with her and experience what she's experiencing in this fear and this, you know, anticipation of the inevitable doom that's coming for her. Um, And that made it sink in more. That made you empathize with her. You sat with her as she came to grips with her reality. um, And it forced you into this position of empathy and someone who's in it with her versus just someone watching her experience these things. Yes. Um, and I don't think you can do that without periods of 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 not nothingness. She's doing things, but without mm-hmm. significant event after significant event or 24 explosion after 24 explosion. Exactly. Like 24 a, will cut to the other scenes while like Jack is driving from place to place or that sort exactly. of thing. Exactly. So yeah. Well, Jack you takes a bathroom break. You see them yeah. drive from place to place. You see her walking down the street and seeing people. And it's like using that real time nature to give you like a portrait of the city in a really interesting right. way. Absolutely. Um, so. It's very a very authentic movie as well. You can actually retrace Clea's steps in Paris, and a lot of it takes Fine. place in public places. I don't think the apartment that they have for her is in like the exact place that they walk into or or anything like that. But still, it's like how much would you pay for that walking tour of Paris? Ooh, I mean, there's a video on Criterion that where someone recreated it like on a motorcycle. That's um, fine. So I feel like I sort of got it. I did not watch the full thing, but I what if it was, a little bit it, and it's got like a map on the screen sort of thing. Sort what if it neat. was a walking tour led by Jean-Luc Godard? Ooh, that would be neat. You would pay a lot of the money for that. <laughs> yeah, I would pay more for Agnes Varda, but both of them are passed away, sadly. Well, then I would pay a lot, a lot of money for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Um, um So, yeah, I thought that this was really great um this is our first agnes varda of two the other one is a documentary so i'm excited to see that the gleaners and i the gleaners and i yes uh made in the year 2000 um so yeah she and that's that's a good microcosm of sort of her career because she is an important filmmaker in the of the French New Wave, but unlike many of the others, including Godard and Truffaut and and others, you know, that mainly had their careers in the 60s and somewhat into the 70s. She is really spread out. Her debut is in 1955, so earlier, 
And then this is like her second feature film. She does some other documentary stuff, including working with uh, the French Tourism Bureau to create a a short documentary about the French Riviera. That's quite good. I've seen it. Um, right. It's like half an hour long. It's it's really neat. That one's called Along the Coast. Um, but yeah, so this is her second feature film. She does a mix of narrative uh, feature film, short film, documentary, sort of all sorts of stuff. And has this really lengthy career. She was making films until she died in 2019 and they're all pretty well thought of. Um, so she stayed relevant and working for longer than a lot of her French new wave contemporaries. And I think she's my favorite from the French new wave. She's just so wonderful. Mm -hmm. So curious, so interested in people faces moments it's just that humanity that her work embodies really uh i really respond to yeah absolutely agnes varda what a woman what a woman what a woman mm -hmm. so mainly i just wanted to talk through the sequences in this movie and and what they uh add to the movie Let's start um, with that opening sequence. Yeah. That, that straight from the ceiling shot of the tarot cards was amazing. And the credits so like good. overlaid on top of it in interesting ways, playing with yeah. shape and with color. Um, and then it cuts to black and white of like, we're going from fantasy and hypothetical to like maybe grim reality sort of thing wait wait hold on wait yeah the first bit was in color it was the tarot card reading was in color which i was very confused by because i was almost certain this film was in black and white and then it switched to black and white and i was like oh God. wait so okay it was in color and then switched right to black and white when they switched to their faces right that's right okay i remember feeling like it was a really dramatic shift to the faces which it was but I think I didn't notice the black and white or the color to black and white. Yeah. But that definitely adds to it being feeling dramatic. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's what, what causes that effect. Yeah. Wow. I clearly was paying attention. Um, yeah. It's opening cool. credits, you know. I mean, it is, but yeah. Yeah. So we had that. Um you get i thought it was interesting it does some foreshadowing of things that are happening gives you some like it's inter interesting as an expository tool to like tell you a little bit of what's going on via the tarot card reader predicting or telling her about her life um thought that was clever yeah, I would want to go back and like rewatch the title sequence or the opening sequence as um to see how right she was about everything. Like she did make predictions about her lover and her mom and all this stuff and her behavior. Um, and obviously culminated with the correct though she didn't tell Cleo this, but she told her like husband or partner or guy in back room, um, it's cancer, you know, like she read that in the tarot cards. And so yeah. I would love to see if she's right about other things. Yeah. Um, I also, 
I don't know. I think I I don't know how like into tarot Cleo was before the tarot card reading. Yeah. I just thought to like the desperation we feel and the powerlessness we feel. Like I'm not a tarot card person. I've had a tarot reading. Um I think when we're in a position of just feeling so powerless and so desperate, if we're awaiting a medical diagnosis and we're assuming the worst, the the things we grasp onto for answers, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be prayer, whether it be changing diet dramatically or essential oils or tarot, fortune reading, things like that, um, we become a lot more open to anything that will help us feel either like answers or that we're doing something to heal it or um yeah just we're we're so desperate for some sort of understanding and so i don't know what cleo was like before but i definitely was like yeah if i thought i was dying i might try to find all the answers i could um which i definitely that was more of just an insight to me to than what agnes varda was trying to do but it, it i i just like that this movie opened with something a behavior that for me, would have been a very desperate behavior. And that was the first thing we learned about Cleo. We got to see that she was seeking out this type of tarot reading um, at the height of her kind of hysteric reaction to the news. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was really relatable. Yeah, it is. It's it's good she threw out like especially in terms of like telling her lover what's going on or and her servant keeps giving her advice of like oh don't share or don't do this don't do that there's definitely a like hesitance to cope in the way that maybe i don't think tarot card readings an unhealthy way to cope for it but it's like uh it's trying to make up for something that she feels like she's missing because she can't cope in the way that maybe she would want to otherwise i don't know that's interesting oh tarot and yeah so then after this tarot card reading you see her you know meet up with her you called her a maid and a servant i would just say like assistant yeah i loved Angela, she was great she was so funny um so like level-headed but also a little bit bossy but also like bossy as um as a an employee is really interesting (laughs) i also loved during the 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 band rehearsal that they have in a later scene she just sits on the couch and is just bebopping along like a fan like it makes you think Mm -hmm. part of her employment contract is to like (laughs) yeah girl i don't know i thought her character was so fun um this this level head and kind of like decided authoritative presence in the midst of cleo's unraveling is angela and um i thought that was really really charming and and a really i don't know it was comical but it was also very sweet yeah and you get these glimpses of like she is telling her not to mail 
or not to wear the hat out of the store because it's Tuesday and that's bad luck on a Tuesday. And yeah, the superstition so was so interesting. <laughs> there's superstition throughout both Cleo and, and others in the movie where they're not doing certain things or doing certain things because she's awaiting these test results and you don't do anything that could be bad luck at a time like that. Yeah. But you don't wear anything new on a Tuesday is um, interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting also, rule. Why don't we wear hats anymore as a society? You know, we wear more like, hats. Like, yeah, yeah. Especially like, I love hats beanies. like that. That was great. Yeah, like a little fancy, little fancy, little hat thing. Jackie O just set us up for something wonderful. I know mm -hmm. it was not Jackie O, but she's the first person I could think of that wore an iconic hat, um, in that era. But man. Yep. What could be? Maybe they'll come back around. Honestly, mm -hmm. hats are great too because if you just gotta stretch time till hair wash day. That's why I love beanie season. Um, the other thing that stood out to me in the early sequences here was how we're internal and focused on Cleo, but also gesturing to the larger world around her quite often. Um, the first thing that that stood out was. Uh, at the cafe when you first meet Angela, she's having a conversation but then it sort of like pans and you don't hear Angela's conversation as much as just like the table behind them to random people talking. The lovers breaking up because she yeah. won't sleep with them. Yeah. Well, and... she'll sleep with them because it leaves at 2am. So I imagine they're doing something. But anyway. Mm, yeah. yeah. You've got uh random radio broadcasts talking about the war you've got all of these gestures to like the larger world that as a you know if if you're in a city you get constantly bombarded with those things but since this movie is such an internal portrait i thought it was pretty fascinating to have that always present as well and always seeing other people you know it cuts away to this silent film for like seven minutes towards the end which we'll certainly talk about uh but you're getting a lot of external information that informs the internal struggle yeah that's fair or how kind of like life goes on around you while you're withdrawing into your own anxieties yeah um, but you kind of i don't know i mean you get a little bit a couple of moments of her inner dialogue or inner inner thoughts um cleo's and they're mainly around her vanity about you know she's so beautiful and then it kind of goes to that her beauty is her biggest asset um i'm sure there's some fear of you know having cancer losing your hair mm -hmm. wasting away like it's it's such a physical um disease that she's she's fearing you know her livelihood in that standpoint um and she kind of goes from being like applauding her own beauty to fearing losing her own beauty to being able to like finally stop thinking about her own beauty and experience the people around her so it's kind of this like this descent away from the vanity that is her livelihood um yeah in a, in, a, in a way that's i don't think she's met necessarily like consenting to that level of 
empathy of the world around her um, or even willingness to observe the world around her. I think she's kind of falling into a, a pattern of not thinking about herself through as a beautiful woman anymore, but she does end up there. Yeah, definitely. And that's really what unlocked the movie for me was that shift that occurs in the middle of the movie. Um, I saw a Agnes Varda interview where she was talking about it, and I pulled this quote out. During the first part of the movie, Cleo is described and defined by those who see her. Her assistant, the hat salesman, her lover, the musicians, and the mirror she has seen. In the middle, I wanted a clean cut. She rips off her negligee, her wig. She leaves. At this point, she begins to look at others. She looks at people in the street, in cafes. She looks at her friend and then the soldier. I consider this a feminist approach. I wanted to focus on her as a woman who defines herself through others' vision, and at some point, because she's the one looking, she changes. She redefines herself on her own. I thought that was, that really made sense of the movie for me, and I didn't totally get maybe on like a subconscious level that shift made sense to me, but it it really clicked for me when I, I heard that, like, oh, I see what this movie is setting out to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I agree that that's what Varda wanted to accomplish. I don't know that I agree that it was accomplished, but does that really matter? I don't know. For me, I didn't see the feminist side of these things. I didn't see her validation become go from external to internal Mm -hmm. i more saw this movie as someone accepting their circumstances or how the Mm -hmm. unknown is perhaps scarier than the known because the whole movie she's 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 in she's fearing her fate and learns that her fate is her worst fear and no longer fears it because she knows what the fate is yeah yeah so i don't know i yeah i don't think that's the only thing that this i know that's i guess doing. that's yeah right that's yeah. the thing i saw the most of i didn't really see um i well hmm. and you get moments of I... vanity in the second half of the movie like her putting on the song and looking around and no one listens to it and so yeah i guess i don't know i think for me is i didn't really see her experience her own validation yeah you know what i mean like i saw i i get that she's defined by the people around her sort of maybe not defined by them but but uh, supported by the way that they esteem her so it's more of like she lives for the applause like some one of the two people on this podcast um lives for the (laughs) applause She says in the middle of the movie during that break, that clean cut that Varda's talking about, all of you coddle me, none of you love me. And that's like a very, uh, and she dramatically takes off her wig and says, I wish I could rip my head off as well. (laughs) Yeah, big drama. So So, I know that I agree that she was being coddled. I don't know. I still think it was, a. uh, she's a, kind of a selfish person I, mm. yeah 
But by the end, I think the way that she relates to Antoine versus the way that she relates to her lover at the beginning of the movie, like there has been a shift and maybe it's just different person, different relationship. And so she's able to relate to him differently, but she is honest, open and is yeah just willing to be herself more fully and relate in a more full sense with the world around her that's fair i mean i think it's also she just becomes she finds someone she feels safe to be honest to yeah yeah and but it's more that she finds someone she feels safe and that allows her to actually be honest with herself Mm -hmm. I don't know that the things she expresses at the end of the movie are things that she's aware that she feels at the beginning of the movie or that she thinks herself capable of feeling. Um, So I don't know. Feminism in the sixties is different than feminism now. I I don't think that what Varda did was not accomplished or what Varda wanted was not accomplished. I just saw bigger themes emerge at least in my experience but i'm not the filmmaker so i can't i can't say intent yeah and that i've been struggling with this question on and off of like if what makes the movie work and what made the movie work for me today was not in the text of the movie it was the director talking about her work and so Maybe if I revisited, I would have gotten there on my own. But because it's not in the text of the movie, like, does the movie accomplish what it's setting out to do? Right. What the director had in mind. Yeah. Because I think some movies are like, here's the message I'm trying to get across. Some movies are very clear about that. Some movies are not. And then some movies don't have a message at all. Some movies are there for the art that they're creating or to perhaps just elicit thought in the in the i always want to say consumer we're not consumers i mean we are but consumer implies monetary yeah. the user the watcher the experiencer whatever yeah the viewer but viewer but see i do more than just view my movies mm. viewer feels um you know just part of my experience with movies mm. that's supposed to come across as uh as, as holier than thou but then you like kind of agreed with me with your mm sound so i feel like I oh my mm was also i was agree in a holier than thou way you know ah could i have done the like poetry reading snaps yeah but you have to say poetry reading snap poetry exactly. reading snaps <laughs> i don't know if the snaps are coming across in the audio anyway so yeah i mean i think there's so many things there's like obviously the movie itself the, the clear messages, the questions it asks. There's the filmmaker's intent and how honest they are with what their intent is. You know, I mean, there's movies where it's like, who was the killer? Who was the bad guy? There's movies where the bad guy is really obvious. Um, and there's movies like John Dielman where you're supposed to have assumed that, you know, she snapped and that's why she killed the guy. You know, like there's, yeah. there's so many things where it's like the... Oh gosh, I'm blanking. I feel like I saw like a, some sort of article recently where, oh, that mm, 
Okay, Brian, sorry about this. So then the Gilmore Girls revival. <laughs> Spoilers, y'all. You know, the Gilmore Girls revival, it it was released 16 years after the first episode. So the daughter who was 16 is now 32, which is the age of the mom was. And then anyway, um, at the very end of it, um, you see over the years, she's had a couple different romantic partners and um it, the very last thing is is the daughter telling the mom that she's pregnant. Um, and Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator, was like, I mean, we didn't say who the dad was, but wasn't it obvious? And like, kind of felt like, shouldn't people have understood that? Like, kind of like, you guys, there wasn't a question. This was clear. Um, anyway, do you have anything to say about the Gilmore Girls revival? <laughs> I am happy for those of you who participate. I think it has whip smart dialogue and I do not want to watch all of it. That's fair. That's how I feel. Well, I'm sure there's things that you watch that I'm like, I'm really happy you enjoy that. And I'm happy for the human race that it was created. Also, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm sure those are out there. Before we move on from this middle segment that we're sort of dancing around, I do want to talk about that song in the middle and incredible song, incredible performance. Um, the the one at the rehearsal where she's like, it's too dark. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. So, yeah, her voice is fantastic. Performance mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, the piano player is the one who wrote the song. His name is Michael Legrand. And he's quite famous. He's adorable. He's adorable yeah. with the glasses and the gorgeous hair. My God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he does a bunch of French New Wave stuff, particularly with uh, Jacques Tati. And then he goes on to work with Orson Welles on some stuff, too. So he. Oh, yes, uh, I've heard of him. Yes. (laughs) Orson Welles. Ever heard of him? Orson Welles. Yeah. Michael Uh, So exciting. Mm hmm. But yeah, he's he's great. And the song is great. So that definitely was a, a standout to me and helped heighten that hinge point of the movie. Uh, I agree. Hinge point of the movie. Yeah, because I think for her, it really just hit too much to home all, or hit too close to home. All of the things that she was fearing. And she's kind of realizing as she's singing it, like, oh, gosh, like, this isn't just something I'm singing. This is something I'm experiencing. And that's terrifying. Like, when you're not anticipating Mm -hmm. something to affect you as much as it does, um, it can be really scary. And you can really just want, I mean, she just wanted to retreat. She didn't want to be around anyone who, who could potentially see her for this thing that she's afraid to experience. Yeah. So it's 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 and music has a beautiful way of doing that. Um, and I imagine for her performing something so difficult because obviously, like you know, you can listen to a that <laughs> one sketch from SNL with the Adele song where they all just keep walking in <laughs> and weeping to someone like you. Like it yeah. hits you when you're not expecting it. Music can do that, and for an artist like her, it's all the more heightened. Um, yes. So, yeah, I her diva moment, I felt like, oh, that's just a coping mechanism for you being confronted with difficult feelings. Okay, cool, cool. I get yeah. that. Yeah. 
And then the other really upsetting thing is all of the uh, street performance stuff. Oh, so the yeah, guy swallowing the, the frogs and vomiting and then someone like weirdly stabbing themselves with something. Uh, anyway, he pierced the... his own arm. Yeah. No, again, no thanks. no thanks. Yeah, no thanks. And also, if you were Cleo and were worried about having cancer, like even more upsetting that all of this stuff is going on around you well i think too it's it's like those people are performing using ugliness Mm -hmm. like their their skill their talent their their thing is gross out what is ugly and her thing is based on her beauty and she's fearing the ugliness of dying so it's a little bit too of like is this what i'm gonna have to resort to like and she hasn't really you know you don't see any symptoms really of her illness she seems to be like the perfect picture of health so having those like almost previews of what might be to come i'm sure is really upsetting yeah because everyone knows when you get cancer you start vomiting frogs Oh, vomiting frogs. No, no, thank you. Um, the vom- yeah. vomiting frogs just as like a band name. It'd do the bowling for soup thing where you like, are they frogs that are vomiting? Is a person vomiting frogs? Are they frogs that you eat to induce vomiting? Yeah. Are you bowling for to earn soup or are you bowling on behalf of soup? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of her uh, her friend that she meets? towards the like well it's it's the latter half of the movie Dor- Dorothy Dorothy um I thought she was super cute um I liked their kind of commentary they're back and forth over like n- nudity and then that was kind of continued with her with uh Cleo's interaction with Antoine um I don't know her friend had like she seemed like the the fun, sweet friend vibes where she was just really there to support her and love her, not take things too seriously. Her comments about how she couldn't drive, I thought were funny. I didn't really know what to think about their interaction, though. Yeah, it felt a little, I don't know, it, it felt like she was sort of brought in to fill the role that the... Uh, helper uh assistant filled towards the beginning of just sort of being a sounding board for Cleo someone to bounce off of and I think you just needed a different character for that because she's trying to make the clean break from the from the beginning of the movie um so yeah you, you don't really explore her character a lot but it is nice to for Cleo to have someone to uh, bounce things off of during that part of the movie. Um, yeah, and I think too, like Angela, her sounding board responsibilities were to like make sure sh- make sure that Cleo was maintaining her sanity, was taking care of herself, was like the the consoler to the to the very emotional Cleo. Dorothy mm-hmm. is the like. I don't know. I felt like Cleo around Dorothy was more level-headed, almost like trying to the overcorrection of having less, like no emotion or feeling like as, um, 
as level-headed as she could, almost tamping down any of the fear. And then Antoine is really where she truly found the middle of like, I'm allowed to be scared. I'm allowed to ask for support. I don't know. You kind of saw this, like, she went from the this incredibly emotional to a, or non-emotional to like, I don't want to say appropriately emotional because all those emotions are valid, but like the pendulum swung and finally settled in the middle of the movie or in the middle towards the end. Yeah, I think I see that. Um, And then you have this sequence as well where the two of them go deliver a package and then you see this like silent short film uh, in the movie. So this is what was that? I mean, I got it, but I didn't get why it was there. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about that first. So the, I think it's really just like a simple theme that Varda wants to introduce of you can view all events in multiple ways and you can choose how you want to respond to something um, is what she's trying to do with it in terms of like relevance to the movie it also seemed from interviews like she did it as a way to she felt like that's the point of movies towards like the end of the second act beginning of the third act where movies lag and so she wanted to do something sort of fun and different there um it's fair and so that's for sure yeah, I liked it. I I liked that you I thought... cut away for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like just like the first true weird thing of the movie, which was kind of fun, just given especially like what we know about the French New Wave. So mm-hmm. it was nice to have something a little weird. Also, I love the movie within a movie situation. That's always fun. It is fun. What is, what is this? Singing in the rain? Totally um so we've got a little bit of a same actor corner here with the casting of this silent film so Mm -hmm. Jean-Luc Godard is the man in this and he directed Pierre Le Fou which we've seen and several others on the list that we've yet to get to uh Anna Karina is the uh female lead in Pierre Le Fou and in this silent short film then I found one other crossover uh just a guy who played an extra in both the silent short film and the 400 blows um who's actually had a very successful career and been leads in eric romer movies and some other stuff but jean-claude briali um and i think it just highlights that like the French New Wave is basically just a, a group of friends who all like work at the same magazine and hang out and make like super low budget films it's just sort I of mean, fun that they're all just like hanging out, making movies. What is this? Will Ferrell in the 2010s? Am I right? Something like that. Or Adam uh, Adam Sandler with his Netflix movies and just like bringing the gang to like, yeah, let's go vacation in Greece and shoot a movie while we're at it sort of thing. What is this? Every single Ryan Murphy creation? Yeah. Loves the Sarah Paulson. Anyway. Um yeah no i think that is fun i think it's just like hey buddies get in loser we're going to make a movie you know mm-hmm. do you know that reference brian get in, get in loser we're going shopping uh mean girls 
Yeah, baby. That's my yes. man. Good work. Good work. Um, um, apparently, the origin of this silent short film is that Varda hated that Godard always wore sunglasses. And so, oh, so she wanted sassy. to like, I love sassy. she wanted to trick him into having to take the sunglasses off for the point of the plot in her little short film. That's genius. <laughs> yeah. Again, we love a sassy lady or a sassy man. We love anyone who's sassy. Yeah. Sassiness. It's in short supply these days. Not in our house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, one day podcast you'll meet our children and mm-hmm. by that i mean no you won't um anyway yeah I okay think... did you meet oh, you go ahead meet last cute. 20 yeah, minutes of this you... movie i think it was my favorite part of the movie i thought it was so wonderful okay here's my thing is my mind went you are a woman walking alone in the park and a man is walking up to you being a little too aggressive i my alarm bells were going off and i kind of took me longer than it should have to like him because mm. my my sensibilities are so warped by horrible things that happen. So, yeah, I maybe I should rewatch it because I did think he was cute. So mm-hmm. at first I thought I was like, OK, he's going to assault her. And then yeah. I thought, oh, gosh, he's just a big nerd. And then I was like, oh, she's into it. OK, this is kind of cute. But it took me a while to get there. Yeah, it was surprising because that happens so late in the movie where, you know, in a more typical movie, maybe you get the same amount of time devoted to like a romantic subplot, but it's spread throughout a movie instead of like at the very end here. But I I thought from a it's it's playing with structure in a way that I liked and I thought their conversation made a lot of sense it made sense why they would be seeking someone like each other in a moment like this and it was just nice for Cleo to have someone that she could really rely on in in these moments I don't know why um her uh her friend Dorothy doesn't come along with her spend time with her in in her moment of need here uh seems like cleo sort of wanted to leave but yeah i, mean, I she... think i, I think ahead. it's back to the emotional pendulum right i don't think cleo left space for dorothy to be what cleo needed um yeah I don't know. I, I, it did not bother me that it was till not till the last 20 minutes. I thought, okay, this is fitting. Like she was, you know, cuddled and not loved and then needed to be alone. And then now she's found someone who presumably is willing to love her as much as she needs to be loved. Like I thought that their conversation about, um, you know, they've been in love, but it's not, you know, it wasn't truly giving themselves to the other person because the other person never truly gave themselves to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was this kind of like both Cleo and Antoine were, were willing to be, to, to give themselves fully in that way. I mean, obviously they're not in love, but in terms of just being open and vulnerable Mm -hmm. in a way that we definitely have seen, at least for, you know, the last one hour and 40 minutes had not seen Cleo be able to do with anyone around her. And I also don't think anyone around her really invited her towards that type of love, especially as you see her interacting with her lover who 
can give her five minutes here and there. And he might really love her, but how can you yeah. love someone and only give them five minutes every other day? So I don't know. I thought it was like a very much. I don't know. I thought Antoine was just the pendulum setting in a lot of different ways with all of the storylines that we've experienced thus far in a way that was really, really satisfying and made you just kind of love, love that Cleo was finally in a position to feel like she can safely experience what she needs to experience. And that's how she's able mm -hmm. to come to some level of contentment with her situation. And I don't think that could have happened if not for Antoine making her, Antoine's presence and vulnerability helping her to feel safe yeah definitely and I I also liked that you there's just like a mutual attraction there that turns into as much as it could realistically turn into in 20 minutes so you basically end the movie with them making flirty glances at each other and that's pretty that's much you. it because it's been 20 yeah. minutes you know but yeah. you definitely feel like it feels emotionally right that yeah. like okay we're seeing we're seeing it it's really clever that it's the beginning of something instead of the ending of something um and so clay has been feeling like this is the end the whole entire movie and then she ends feeling like this is the beginning so loved it for sure loved it um asshole yeah. of the movie award goes to the doctor at the very end here what a terrible terrible way to did he even tell her what she had i mean it was cancer because he said she needed the word radiation yeah you know yeah i mean the fact that he's like i'll let you know and she goes there and he's according to his office staff not even there and then he kind of is like well, why don't you just come to my office and she was like they wouldn't let me they said you weren't there like mm -hmm. i think he he's does, super he... dismissive after having blown her off right and i think there's like a little bit of him like i mean the justifier in me wants to say that like well he's trying not to worry her too much by kind of downplaying it but like it's cancer yeah or maybe he just doesn't answer. take her seriously because she's a woman and he may be i mean it's possible that he saw her in hysterics like she was at the beginning of the movie and he's like oh crap i gotta downplay this like or not downplay it but just like try to kind of come to some sort of emotional center with her but maybe not by gaslighting her and yeah. making i don't know i i yeah i i don't know i feel like a <laughs> So, I mean, I fortunately have not had cancer and I've not had any serious medical situations. But I remember when I was pregnant, especially the first time, my doctor had this way of kind of like, you didn't feel rushed. Like, I felt like I could always ask her what I needed to ask her and she would give me answers and she would talk to me. But also her attitude is very much like, oh, it's just another pregnancy. I'm a doctor. I deal with this all the time. And yeah. It wasn't that I was being dismissed, but it was almost like her nonchalance made me feel safer because if she wasn't worrying as a person who has delivered 500,000 babies, why should I be worried? So that's yeah. what I want to let this doctor be, but I think he's just a jerk. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I did not feel reassured by what he said. So, 
you learn she's going to need radiation, so it is cancer. And he basically tells her not to worry about it. She'll be fine. I, as a viewer, did not feel like, oh, this is, you know, you're sort of wondering throughout the movie, like, is this going to resolve happily with her being fine or not? And I think it ends a little more ambiguously, even though the doctor is saying you'll be fine. And, you know, I I struggled with how to interpret the ending. Are we meant to believe that Cleo is going to be physically okay in the long term? Or are we meant to just understand that she's emotionally okay, that she's at peace? And I think, I think it's the latter. latter. Yeah. I don't think it means she's not going to be physically okay, but I don't mm-hmm. think her physical safety is what's the movie's trying to set it to, to get across. Yeah. I felt like it was more ambiguous. It was, it was yeah. leaving it ambiguous while giving you a little bit. I like that. It doesn't withhold right. <laughs> any of the information that, you know, yeah, the movie's not the doctor. It's not going to withhold things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I felt like it was an appropriate ending and more nuanced than most movies would have ended that sort of because it you start the movie with this question and you're waiting for the answer to the question the whole movie and you get a sort of answer. <laughs> As, yeah. I feel like most movies would either clearly answer it or clearly not answer it. And this goes for a nuanced approach. Yep, yep, yep. I agree. Mm-hmm. What a movie. Mm-hmm. What a picture. What a picture. Any final thoughts? I was just going to ask that. Um, I think the only thing that I just thought was, like, cute was that we learned that her name isn't Cleo, it's Florence. Oh, yeah, that was. But we don't learn that until she's talking to Antoine. And I feel like that's just another example of her being able to like relax with him. Some Mm -hmm. the way about his presence and his being helps her be like, okay, here's who I truly am. Here's my actual name. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, Florence. This may also be just embarrassing on my part, but I didn't know she was wearing a wig for the first half of the movie until she took it off. Yeah, it didn't look like a wig. It just looked like I think if you were more familiar with 60s hairstyles, you might be like, oh yeah, that doesn't happen naturally. But her little short hair was so cute. Um yeah. That was wonderful. Tell me something about 2001 A Space Odyssey. So for 2001 A Space Odyssey, they shot footage that is said to be nearly 200 times the final length of the film. And the film was released 16 uh, months behind schedule. So another one of those movies that's an arduous, long production that turned into a movie that people quite like. And sometimes that does not happen with arduous and long productions. So I am glad. Are we thinking an Apocalypse Now situation? We got the movie we did. But that's also well liked. I'm, I was trying to think of a good example of one that did not turn out well. And you've got infamous like, mm, mm, like mm, mm. Avatar Way of Water. Ooh, Avatar Way of Water. I yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I guess it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but that's and it did well at the box office, it. critically. Well, of course, it did well at the box office, but I don't know. I didn't see it, but I had no mm. desire to either. Yeah, anyway. I don't know. Um. Anyway, two thousand one Space Odyssey. That's our fact. Uh, you should subscribe to this podcast and rate us if you mm-hmm. like us. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. don't like us, then feel free not to give us a rating or to give us a great rating so that we feel all warm and fuzzy. And it doesn't cost you anything to give us a great rating, even if you hate us. It's or you thing. could, if you hate us, you don't have to give us a rating. Um, You can find Brian on Twitter. Blue Sky, no, 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 no. And just PM him and then I'll come after you if you're mean to him. But that's... Anyway, Brian's on Blue Sky and Leatherboxed and X and <laughs> Yeah, those are those are the ways to find me. You can find mm-hmm. Hannah via Nowhere. Telegraph. Uh she can be reached via telegraph. Um yes, so I can work but for I it. don't know Morse code, so mm. yeah. Yeah. Uh something about dots and dashes. Um something what's our next movie, Hannah? Oh, well, Brian, let me tell you that our next movie is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Is this a silent film from the 20s? It is. Okay. So this is um, a silent film from the 20s. So, you know, Mm -hmm. be prepared. Um, Streaming on Tubi and Hoopla. Yes. Hoopla is free with the library card. I'd actually not recommend Tubi for this. You can also probably, a lot of these silent films, because they're not uh, copyrighted anymore, you can just go on the Wikipedia page and stream the whole thing there, too. So On the Wikipedia page? Yeah. They preserve, wow. they just, like, embed the video because it's not copyrighted. So All right. We love stuff. it. Crazy yeah. stuff. Anyway. This Hi, has guys. been What a Picture. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. And what a picture it has been.